Welcome back to episode 9 of the Jackass Critics Podcast. This is the second part, and it will be the main event. Yes, yes. And our main event tonight is a discussion on the movie Pick Up on South Street. It's going to be an interesting one, Tom. This has probably had the most uh, effect on me of any movie that we've watched thus far, and uh, should make for some interesting conversation. Yeah, let me ask a question, Matt. Yes, Thomas. How many times have you been caught with your hand where it doesn't belong? <laughs> they don't call me Eight Finger Matt for no reason, Tom. It's twice. <laughs> Eight Finger. <laughs> it's yeah, twice that I can yeah. remember, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, a pretty interesting movie for us to be reviewing. I don't. Let's see. We've we've gone back and done a couple older films, Classics, I guess. Yep. Maybe one or two older films. Um, this one, I don't know if we're going to consider film noir. We'll we'll find out in a second as we yeah. uh, we get down to our conversation. Uh, Pick up on South Street from 1953, from our uh, directed uh, by Mr. Fuller. Samuel Fuller. Yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, just to give a, a brief background, a pickpocket named Skip, played by Richard Whitmark, gets more than he bargains for when he picks up a girl's wallet on a subway train. And uh, inside that wallet is some film that's intended for the commies. The communists, right. yes. Yeah, 1953, we are talking full-on Red Scare. Red Heat, right there, baby. Yep. The cops, the feds, the commies, and a bubblehead named Candy, the one he lifted the film from, are all out to find him yep. and to get the film back. Who will get to him first? Who will get the film from him when they get to him first? Is he street smart enough to survive? What's his angle? Blah, 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 blah. Plenty of questions <laughs> to ask, right, Matt? You make it sound more interesting than it actually is in, in effect or in practice. Uh, I think it's plenty interesting. Uh, well, 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 we'll talk are, about that. Are we in disagreement, Matt? Yes, Tom. Are, are, we, are we the bickering podcast couple now? Uh, for this one in particular, I would say so. It, the characters are, are all pretty uniformly horrible. Um, oh, come on. Uh, and... Uh, it, it it it's a perfect example of a great three sentence synopsis movie and a bad movie in practice, and it wasn't even that long of a okay. movie. So, okay, let's talk about that opening scene. All right, okay, yeah. yeah. So we'll we'll go and talk through some points in chronological order. Um, so the credits ended about one minute twenty seconds, typical of the time. You get these long drawn out credits, yeah. blah blah blah, and then we're in a subway car. Okay. Nothing is said. A number of shots exchange. People looking at each other back and forth as people normally do in a subway yeah. car. You know something's up, but you're not sure what. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two guys that are checking out a dame. Not a bad a looking dame broad. Being, yep. Not not too bad looking. Yep. Um, a little stupid in the face, but not too bad looking. <laughs> you're, um, you're really embracing the '50s. I love it. All right, continue. <laughs> yes. I'm really embracing the candy. Yeah. That's that's what I'm embracing. Yeah. Her name is Candy. Her name is Candy, which will elicit a groan at any watcher in 2012 that pops in, pick up on South Street. In fact, all the names of all the characters are going to really cause you pain. As, as I mentioned when we were discussing beforehand, it's impossible. Yeah. This is the only time where you pick four names for characters, and Candy is the least worst, because we've got Skip, <laughs> the least Joey, yes. and Moe as a woman, M-O-E. Yeah, an uh, older of, woman named Out of those Mo. four, I'd say Candy is the least ridiculous name, so... Come on, Joey's not too bad. Joe. Uh, well, you know, I come from Detroit, so the name Joey causes pretty much any Detroit Lions fan to cringe with uh, Twinkle the Fingers, Joey, Joey Harrington, yes. 
He played a mean yeah. piano and was a played a real not so mean game of football. Mm-hmm. And this Joey <sighs> plays piano all over poor Candy's face later on in the movie. But we'll get to that we'll get later. To that, yes. So enter Richard Widmark, who uh, comes onto the the train. Yeah. He, uh, he he picks a spot to stand right in front of Candy. They sort of exchange glances at each other. Right. Who knows what's going on in Candy's brain at that point? Yep. Um, the two other guys are still sort of observing what's going on there. With Mark pulls up his uh, newspaper, and you see his fingers start to walk through Candy's purse. Purse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wasn't going yeah. to any other place with that. <laughs> still, uh, still no dialogue uh, popped on here, and we're we're a few minutes into the movie, so yeah. And no dialogue for about the first four minutes of this movie. Like, this whole scene plays out really well, I think, in the subway car. Uh, really shows some chops that Sam Fuller has. Uh, uh, hold on a second there, being... boss. Oh, oh. I'm going to start right there. I, I, was afra- I was half afraid, half hoping you would say that this was a sign that Fuller is a good director. From all, yeah. everything I can tell, Fuller is not a good director. Fuller is a typical 50s potboiler guy that made... A lot of movies. I would say that this scene is a good example of good writing and good editing, and Fuller just did what it said on the paper. I disagree. Do we have any other evidence that proves otherwise? Yeah, there are later scenes that we will talk about that I also think bring in Sam Fuller as a a strong director. I think, in many cases, Sam Fuller did not work with, say, like a John Ford budget or a Howard Hawks budget, and he you could tell from looking at his movies, right? Who's the biggest name that he's ever worked with in Hollywood? I, I don't know. I look through a lot of these movies, yeah. and you look at the actors he gets. Like, Richard Widmark is in this movie, and this is considered Come one on. of his best movies. Richard I think, Widmark, right? And Kiss of Death, Richard Widmark was amazing and had a performance that scared me so much that as soon as I saw him in this movie, I'm like, oh, God, it's that guy from Kiss of Death. Uh, but yes, he's not a huge name. But Not a huge name, right. I think there was 20 or 30 Sam Fullers that made movies through the 50s, 60s, and 70s that uh, you know were of similar quality and no better nor worse. But I guess every time... Continue, and I, I have some points later in the movie that I think show that he is, a, in fact, a horrible director and made very bad decisions uh, with one scene in particular. But we, we shall uh, leave that Sam day... Sam Fuller... Later. Sam Fuller, for 40 guns, he shot that movie in 10 days. At least that's according to someone on Twitter yeah. who posted something on Sam Fuller yeah. recently. I don't know if it's true, but I think that he was one of those directors who just did not work with a large budget and did very well with the chops that he had, with what he had to work with, and working into tight corners, yeah. so to speak. I mean, it seems like there's been a bit of a... I will portray it as revisionist history on Sam Fuller. A person that's more attuned to Mr. Fuller's talents will say that he was oppressed or or whatnot, you know, not recognized for his talents. Uh, I will say that he was he was handed projects that were of his skill set and that he could handle, and he did not have the chops to rise above that. There, I say there's a reason he never got a good actor or never made a a movie that was big or particularly good. Whoa. I'm throwing Molotov wow. cocktails out here. Wow. So what other Sam Fuller movies have you seen? One. I've seen part of Under... <laughs> one? Okay. Yeah. I've seen parts of Under Underworld USA, and then I saw maybe like the first 20 or 30 minutes of White Dog, which is... 
of a completely different era. Uh, yes. Well, you gotta laugh at White Dog. Are you tr- are you by saying I noticed you slipped in that it was of a different era, and I assume that's a preventative measure because it was so bad that you hoped that oh. I didn't see it that I would say <laughs> you can't believe you said White Dog as a which for our listeners no. listening and who don't know what White Dog is, and I hope for your sake that you don't. It's a movie about a racist dog. It hates yes. black people. Yes, and it was not allowed to be shown in the United States or wasn't released into a theater until like 10 years after it was made. But it's a movie that talks about racism as opposed to glorifying this great white racist dog that you speak of, right? It was yeah. essentially trained by its previous owner to attack black people. <laughs> And I don't think I got to a point in the movie where it did yet attack black people. I was just in the point where uh, this woman found this big white German shepherd after she hit it with a car and got it revived back to life and kept it. And, you know, it was a very strong dog that knocked her over a couple times. Yeah. Very weird. But what I mean by different era, it was made in the 80s, and the movies we're talking about are all sort of the black and white films of the 50s. Certainly what he's... When you think of Sam Fuller, for the most part, aside from Big Red or whatever, that 80s movie, hmm. I think most of the Fuller movies that people think about are from a black and white era, 4x3, yeah. you know, non-widescreen type movies. But, uh, yeah. yeah, Shock Corridor was the only one that I've seen before this. And, um, again, uh, okay. I thought it was a okay movie. I just get the feeling that every Sam Fuller movie I see I would think is going to be an okay-ish movie. Um yeah, I know Manny Farber was a big poetic critic from that era. Yeah. Um, he was a, a large champion of the films, the brutality of the uh, Sam Fuller films, because I think in a lot of cases there are a lot of scenes that yeah. you watch and you think, holy cow, they got away with that in 1953, because yeah. you really don't see... Uh, brutality to that degree in a lot of other films of the time, unless I'm completely missing the boat on something. I I thought when I was watching some of these scenes, it looked like something that came out of the 70s. Yeah, I can't believe what they did to Candy, basically. And I've seen a lot of Mm -hmm. disturbing movies. I was kind of the resident bad, disturbing movie guy at Jackass Critics for a long time, and I was uncomfortable mm-hmm. with some of the things they were doing to Candy in this movie, you know, during the height of the code and pre-Bonnie yeah. and Clyde and stuff, but, you know, poor Candy, yeah. she really did take some abuse. She really did. Man. She was a real trooper. She All right, really so where do we leave off before I, I did my Sam Fuller... Uh... I think we're still on the train. Okay. Um, so, oh, yes. yes. The, you, you were uh, proposing that... Uh, he was Skip. directing quite well, uh, and I said otherwise. Yeah. Yes. Four minutes, no talking. All right. I think that's pretty damn good. Good work out of there. If, yeah, if yeah. You're not, <laughs> if you're still alive. Good work, writer. You have to you have to film it before the editor gets to the point where he can chop it up and put something together. So yeah. Hats off in that respect. So yeah, <laughs> I, I I thought that was uh, a very strong opening scene. Yeah. It established the movie. Yes. We see yes. who Skip is, and then Richard Widmark had those eyes. I think that's that's what really creeps me out about him. You talk about seeing him in another movie, Kiss of Death, where he creeped you out. He's yes. got these eyes that he looks almost like a, a crazy dog himself. Yeah. Not to riff off of a white dog, yeah. but no. he looks almost like some sort of wild animal that is sort of sizing you up as he's just staring you down. It's probably a normal look for him, Yeah, but... 
watching him, you think, like, this guy could just slap me at any moment. He is unbelievable in Kiss of Death. You would love that movie. He's really great in it as a crazy dog. You you named it. You yeah. nailed it. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. So, we get off the train, uh, and what does he actually have? He, he's got her wallet, but he yeah. has the quote-unquote MacGuffin of the film, which is little roll of film that has some sort of chemical compound on it to create a bomb that the communists are after. And really what Candy was on that train for is she was uh, supposed to be the delivery person for this film. Right. She's not necessarily the commie herself. No, but she's kind she of an was, unwilling partner in the in the process. You know, getting played yeah. by her boyfriend or, you know, kind of vague. They have a relationship. That guy is. Yeah, exactly. Joey. Joey. Yeah, she's just running a job for Joey unsure of what their relationship is. Maybe a friend, a boyfriend, a former boyfriend. They right. don't seem very lovey with each other. They seem like associates, but she's obviously not yes. and a the, commie scum. And of like course, Joey. this is the uh, cliche alert. One last job before she gets out. You know, She doesn't know Joey anything anymore or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you promised me this is my last job, Joey. You know. Gosh. Oh, that's true. Yes. That's true. We do have a uh, cliche alert. We can yes. chalk that one up. I just marked it on the uh, piece of paper next to me. <laughs> Hang on, let me go ring the bell in the other room. That cliche <laughs> bell. Yes. All right, so uh, our friend uh, Skip has got uh, the prize, and he doesn't really know what to do with it, and doesn't know uh, that he's kind of set the first domino off of... But he, he's, he's smart. He knows he's got something, and... Yeah. Um, we are at this point, are we at Skip's humble abode, the, the chalet, so yeah, to speak? Another. He has pretty nice, uh, a pretty nice house he lives in, yeah. Matt, would you say? Uh, so, uh, do you uh, give Sam Fuller credit for, for picking that house? Because you know I'm about to hate on it, so I want to know if I'm allowed to hate on Sam Fuller for choosing this place or not. Oh, I'm completely fine with it. Alright, so to describe I'm to our audience completely okay with it. Where, yeah. where Skip lives, and his name, by the way, I wrote down the whole thing, Skip McCoy. So, mm-hmm. I, I love that name. So, Skip McCoy uh, yeah. lives in this shack. It's yeah. like, if you take what... With his partner, Chubby McFlubbins. Yeah. <laughs> if you take uh, the shack that the Unabomber lived in, if you're old enough to remember who the Unabomber <laughs> was, and then you suspend it over a river and throw down, like, two long two-by-fours to walk up into this suspended cabin over the water... That's where he lives, and it's, this is chosen to give you an idea that, and this is just so painful, He's he lives outside the bounds. How do we show people that he lives outside the bounds? I know, we're going to suspend this little cabin over a river, and he's going to walk on these two-by-fours to get into it. It's going to be awesome. He's not going to have electricity or a place where it's obvious that he can wash himself, and the only thing that he that we ever know that he, he eats or drinks is beer, and he just keeps it in the river, because that's how cool he is. Oh, my God. Are you done? Yeah, I'm done now. Okay. I think I just painted the So head. what I love about this is <laughs> he's he's a hood. He's a criminal. Yeah. He's a pickpocket. All right. How do you expect him to live? In a flop house, he, a flea bag motel. That's where everybody lives. That, that's too expensive. He's got this shack probably because it's free yeah. or he knows someone and he can just sort of... That's waterfront property. What are you talking about? That's like a million dollar <laughs> Unabomber <laughs> shack. Right. Yeah, it probably smells like fish, though. It does. How does he clean himself? It, and I mean, he wears a suit every day. This is the 50s. and 
Well, he has to. He, yeah. he cleans himself up for that. I don't know where he cleans himself up. Maybe he, he goes to the flop house for that. All right. There, Fair okay. enough. So there are some problems that I will acknowledge with this. Yes. Number one, we are to assume, I believe, and you'll probably agree with me on this, even though it's never stated, that he is in New York City. Yes, right. New York City gets cold in the winter, and it doesn't look like he has <laughs> a lot of insulation. Much less electricity. <laughs> yeah, going yeah. on in there. Yes. So how long does he live there? I don't know. All right. So yeah, that that's one problem. And then yes, number two, as you said, um, he does wear a suit. He looks very presentable. He looks fairly clean. Yes. Um, I don't know where he does that though. Yeah. As you said, and I'm not so, usually yeah, a guy I, that thinks below the surface, but all this was just so irritating to me. I start my mind started wandering about where where does he live there? Where how does he clean himself? This is ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. So he's back okay. in his his pad, and he realizes he's got something, and. Uh, was it around that point that we uh, get introduced to the least likable character in the history of movies? Well, let me start Please. by saying there, yeah. uh, I really enjoyed the scene where the cops are speaking and we're introduced to Mo. Oh. Uh, let me just put that out there right now. Yeah. The camera work, again, so marvelous. <laughs> there were these long takes within this scene. Yeah. I know you're you're just like you feel like you got the needle in you and the doctor hasn't pulled it out yet. But, but. <laughs> keep keep pushing it in, Doc. <laughs> yeah, but you know the the space within this scene is just so open that the detectives and whatnot will walk around, want to walk to a desk, feels all very natural, and then the camera sort of flows with that, putting everyone back within the frame. It feels very well acted, feels very well directed to me, and uh, I I love these these long take scenes as opposed to cutting back and forth, back and forth. It yeah. really does add an air of realism, and I think probably also done on the cheap a little bit, so there's less film to shoot if they get it all in, in one take or two takes. Yeah. You know, there's there's less to do in the editing room, so it was probably done for a, a cost measure as well. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, I really love that they introduced uh, this Mo Williams character oh, to the... Uh, gosh. All right. Well, right. you're right in that the scene, the setting of the scene, <laughs> and the way that it is is filmed is extremely realistic. But mm-hmm. then we have this incredibly unrealistic conversation that is occurring at the same time. It's jarring, and it's unrealistic in that the setup is Mo, who's this female character, this old lady. Um, mm-hmm. She kind of toes the line between the underworld that Skip is from and the world where the squares live, where you and I live that pay taxes, and, and she's kind of a stoolie uh, with a conscious, I guess you could say, um, for What the kind police. of talk is that, calling me a stoolie? Yeah. That's a direct line from the movie. So yeah. the problem is, so they bring Mo Williams in to try to figure out what's going on with our friend Skip here. Um, mm-hmm. But Mo... I don't even know how to properly describe this. Mo has a conscious or has a set of rules that she won't directly tell them what's going on with Skip. But if they work under this illusion that these cops are going to buy a tie from her, that she'll give them, she'll sing a song for them, you know, if you will, to try to use the parlance of their times. But she uh, has to get money for uh, it about what's going on with Skip. So the the conversation is so forced and so sophomoric about this tie will fit for you it'll fit a little better if you've got some money oh my god nobody talks like that this old lady walking around with this stupid box of crap to sell it's out of a twilight zone video or something it's just ridiculous 
And then she's a character from the underworld. She's she's straddling between trying to make a living for herself by selling these horrible ties, which of course she can't make a living on. Right. And then being this person who uses whatever information she can to make whatever money she can. So she sings at the police office to uh, you know to give the uh, the police any sort of information they can for fifty bucks or whatever she gets paid for. Yeah, uh, but you can have a, a so they have a conversation that no one would have. I mean, can we agree that that conversation is is a purely a dramatic fixture? I mean, the way that they go about that doesn't really exist. I I can be a a person in the underworld and I I rat out or with Mm -hmm. dignity I tell police things you know if I see something wrong Mm -hmm. or I'm trying to help somebody out but I'm gonna half-heartedly give them information or just refuse to answer questions or throw some lies in to give them you know the wrong information for some of it but I'm gonna give them enough information to achieve either their goals and get paid that you know so that I get paid or whatever Um, so it's a clash that Everything is done so realistically, and we get the sense that, well, this seems like what a real police station in the 50s would be, but then this conversation that happens is purely a dramatic structure that's created for giving Mo Williams stupid lines that are just written to irritate me. Dramatically enjoyable <laughs> is what I think you're looking for. Dramatically enjoyable. I think enjoyable. that was the phrase. You, I saw you struggling with yes. it. But yeah. Tom, you should write uh, the back of wine labels because I think you could really <laughs> give them a proper airing in terms of uh, you know really selling it. Yes. So uh, we'll we'll constantly hammer we be me on Mo Williams throughout this movie. But then and again, I, I did get constantly. A, we were even we were chit chatting when I watched it, or I was sending you text messages or something on Twitter or whatever, and you promised me a payoff that I would like and it, it did in fact yeah. happen so it was awesome I said don't worry yeah. don't worry Matt keep moving forward with the movie Correct. we want to podcast this yes. Mo does bite a bullet eventually Correct. so you will get a payoff she gets the old lead haircut if you will so <laughs> lead haircut <laughs> <laughs> made me very happy yeah it was almost worth putting up with it so all right. and, and Mo Williams is played by Thelma Ritter. Uh, many people may know her from other movies such as Rear Window, where she plays the uh, nosy massager. Yeah, oh, I don't yes. know what you call it, physical therapist. She is yes. whatever. And she has this sort of um, in most movies where she isn't playing uh, street scum like she is in this movie, yeah. which is most of her movies. She plays this sort of service person with wit and wisdom, I guess you could say, right? Good call, yeah. She sort of gives Jimmy Stewart some advice on marrying Grace Kelly, yeah. which is advice any man with the means should be hearing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, and in this movie, uh, she plays a, a slightly different character. She still has a sort of delivery and voice that's very recognizable. Oh, yes. I don't know what it is. It's probably some sort of New York uh, accent from some area or nook or cranny of New York. I, I don't know what it is, but she has this very iconic thing about her. I enjoyed the character. I thought she was fine. I, I thought she had this, this complete struggle between being someone who's connected to the underworld in some very meager way and someone who's just like scraping and scratching to survive. Like Every day is like a struggle for her, and when she dies in the end, yeah. she has her little soliloquy where she discusses this, Ugh. what kind of life is this that I'm living? That was and I'm sure worst. that whole scene was torture for oh you. Oh my You're god. Like, and here's another... Squeeze the trigger, squeeze the trigger. <laughs> please, yeah. I was yelling at it this 
Just kill her. The best Make the part, voice stop. If, they sh- if he shot her in the middle of a sentence, oh my god, that would have been awesome. You know, yeah. right when she's like, oh, I got something really poor. Bing! Shoot her in the face! Um, so that version will be re-released. It'll be called the uh, Jackass Matt recut. <laughs> I'll put uh, some color the in there. recut. Here's, the, yeah. here's another thing about the Mill Williams character. Every time the movie gets to a point where there's an unsolvable problem, she is the worst cipher. The cops are stonewalled. What are we going to do? we got to find out what skip's going to happen. Bam! Mo Williams shows up. Hey, it's the, sol- it's the solution to all of our problems. Uh, similarly, you know, Skip is going to get, a little later in the movie, uh, basically rubbed out, you know, and if nothing happens, you know, Skip is going to get, you know, eat the lead bullet himself. Bam! Mo Williams shows up. She's like the most convenient cipher to solve every problem. I just envisioned Sam Fuller and some writer in a room, and they've got the basics, uh, you know, plot sketched out, and they say, okay, well, we've got the situation we don't know how to solve. Hey, let's just, we've got this Mo Williams character. Let's just throw her in there, and she'll solve the problem. Every time there's a problem that can't be solved, let's just throw Mo Williams in there, and she'll come up with this motherly, matronly advice or whatever that'll solve our problem. She's a problem solver in the movie, and it's BS. Lazy. We'd probably have a pretty boring movie if nobody could find Richard Widmark, though, for 90 minutes. Yeah, just saying. Just come up with just a more saying. creative way than a, 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 mo, a, a character with a horrible accent and horrible lines and horrible face, and she's a horrible person, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Sorry. Okay. Now, eventually, <laughs> right, they, they do pull in our buddy Skip into the office, yep. and while the police are, are thumbing over Skip, yeah. and I guess one of them, uh, what did they say? There was a specific line that one of the cops said, uh, something about I've been he was punching him over a couple times before, and that's what got him on street duty again, or, yeah. or something to this extent. Right. So, yeah, Richard Whitmark plays the whole thing off like, I don't still know wallets, because he knows if... They, they had him on anything, he, he would uh, probably already be in, in, you know, in the slammer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as one of the cops put it, he'll always be a two-bit cannon, or maybe he put it that way to the cops. I forgot what it was. I thought that was a pretty neat line. Yeah. I wrote it down. I don't know who to quote with it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's uh, Skip is a gruff, uh, not afraid to hit women. Uh, yeah. Just also like Mo living in the underworld, just trying to get by and survive. Yeah. Um, for some reason, going back to his place, he has these Hollywood picture shots on his wall. I'm not exactly sure why. Is, is he living the dream of going to Hollywood someday, or maybe he just wanted a, a pinup of Betty Grable to uh, <laughs> just like lull it, himself to sleep on? Yeah, I almost, I almost wonder if they were going for, like, this reminds him of being in the joint kind of a thing. You know, it's kind of small and enclosed. Typically, you think of, you know, a guy in the joint, he's got his picture of Jane Fonda or, you know, the Playmate of the Month or whatever up on the wall. So I don't know if that's the theme they were going for or something. I don't know. Sign of the Times. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe that was the thing back in the day. Maybe he just wanted to spice the joint up a little that's bit. That's true. You know, you know can- living on Skid Row. Candy does show up. You don't up have to feel gotta, like you're living on Skid Row. you got to impress her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not only are the cops after him yeah. and find him, but also... Um, Candy. Yeah. So the pressure. As soon as yeah. Joey, as soon as Joey finds out that Candy did not deliver the the, the real tape to the commies, yeah. he says, "You better finish the job and go find the tape any means possible." Yep. Poor Candy doesn't know. Look, doesn't look like she knows what she's doing half the time. She's a little fish really. out of water, you know. She's obviously a 
has run some packages or whatever for Joey, but uh, yeah, you know this real hood business is certainly not her forte. Yeah, a little bit of a mouth breather. Um, doesn't look too intelligent. Not too bad on the eyes, but just a little dumb. Yeah. Um, she goes there, uh, sneaks into his house. I forgot exactly how she found out where he lived. Maybe from Mo. It seems I, like Mo. She did get it from Mo. The cipher. Of she course. got it from Mo. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. It, everything is solved by Mo. Uh, she essentially breaks into his place, yep. walks in, and he cold cocks her. Yeah. Boom. No shame. And uh, drops her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. And, uh, yeah, she starts rubbing her chin. Uh, he throws a bucket of water on her to wake her up. Of course. So uh, she doesn't exactly get the lady's treatment there on the pier. No. And um, doesn't walk away with the film either. Has to go back a second time with some money. Yeah. Um, and then that's where we get the uh, line that I open with. How many times have you been caught where your hand doesn't belong? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. while this is happening, kind of the pressure is getting, you know, turned up a little bit. So the, mm-hmm, the coppers mm-hmm. are starting to look in on uh, Skip's place and, and monitoring him. Uh, Joey and his communist friends are getting into a panic state over, you know, the missing uh, film. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, Tommy st- or Skip is still kind of... Uh, he doesn't really know what the full score is. Uh, he doesn't know that he's being watched as closely as he is. Um, he's letting it play out in front of him so he can figure out what kind of money he can pull from this. He's playing it like a cool customer, exactly. Yeah, he's been yeah, he's been in yeah. a bind before. This isn't his first time. Um, so yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, no, he's he's completely cool throughout the whole thing, but he's not like you know Robert Redford cool or anything. He's no. just sort of you know surviving. But he's, it sort of comes a second nature from him to, you know, reject the first offer of sex or $500 as is being proposed to him. Yes. So the second time she does go there, maybe it's the third time they meet, second time she goes to his, um, his ranch. Don't you think they went back to that well a few too many times? I mean, they show her crossing (laughs) that stupid bridge like three times to go there. Isn't that going to the well once too many times in your opinion, Tom? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe they just wanted to showcase how awesome his uh, studio was. R- apartment was. Yeah, <laughs> with exactly. a river view. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> stretch as far as the eye can see. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, first she goes there and she's about to sex him up. She, and this is a quote, really likes him. Yeah, I didn't know what to you make know, of like, that. Like, you know, you you picked my wallet and I came here and you punched me in the face. I'm really starting to like you. Yeah, and. Wow. Out of anyone in the movie, I I mean, I think everyone is pretty much absolutely detestable, and that's probably part of my problem in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I vacillated between liking Candy and feeling sorry for her character, and mm-hmm. at the same time thinking that she's pretty crafty and, and not in a scumbag way, but willing to do what it takes to get the job, but then... The thing she does, like throw herself at this dude, I'm thinking, is she really serious? She's gonna sex this guy up for the film? That doesn't particularly strike me as likable. By any means necessary. Yeah, I mean, I know she's in yeah. she's in the pressure cooker with Joey, and uh, mm-hmm. to the extent she doesn't really even realize until herself and Joey go meet some of the commies, if you will. Um, yes. And then she really kind of gets a full picture of, oh shit, I'm <laughs> really in in it now. They think we're commies. Yeah. What are they saying? Thanks. I don't want to get it. I don't get it. They think we're commies. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
Awful. That's an awesome candy voice, though. Yeah, that? not a bad candy Let's voice. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Should sell that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, so he wants. Uh, she offers five hundred. He wants twenty-five k. She goes back, gets her little whiny. Yeah, you didn't give me the film. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yeah. And at that point, we realize that the stakes are getting a little bit higher. Yeah. Pressure's being turned up quite a bit on Joey, and um, time to lock and load, so to speak. Yeah, and it, it's funny because this is really when the the commie fever starts to hit its pitch, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we get the idea before this point that you know the the commies want it, but when we go to meet the the commie backers or whatever, I mean, it's just so casual. You know, the idea of communists is this just faceless, evil thing that, I mean, there's not really even a good translation to what that would be today. Um, You know, it's like the the Empire in Star Wars or whatever. It's just this thing that exists and is so horrible. Commies, you know. Yeah, this huge cloud that exists in the East. If somebody walks up to you now and says you're a communist, you either say, well, good luck with that, or, you know, ask them, well, how do you feel about this and this? I mean, it's not something that we normally think of as, you know, commies are going to come in and steal your babies. Is basically the the theme, you know, that's going on in the 50s here that, you know, communists want to kill your children and they're, you know, yeah. just the end-all be-all of horrible. So it's just I mean, there's really If someone tells you there's a, they're a communist, you look at them in about three different ways, yeah. right? You look at them like one, like maybe you're a little bit too well-read if you're buying into all these ideolo- ideologies, and you've probably had too good a life yes. to really think this through. And, you know, you got a lot of mommy and daddy's money. You've been sent to good schools. You've got yourself, you know, a very liberal education. And, you know, you might be buying too much into these theories, and I hope when you're 30 you wake up. Right. <laughs> or maybe before then. <laughs> or you're just a complete idiot who... <laughs> You know, why Why would you buy into this? Did you see what happened in Russia during that time? Yeah. And life was pretty crappy, if, yeah. in case you didn't know. Um, and then probably number three is um, you're lazy and <laughs> you are really looking for a handout yeah. and don't want to work so hard. Those are probably like the three communists that I would lump in together. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, I've met one self-described communist in my life, and they were from the and he was number one, the right? first category that you described. That they had a relatively privileged upbringing, and mm-hmm. maybe even for good reasons, they think, well, everyone should have such a good upbringing that I had, and if we make everyone mm-hmm. equal, that'll be the case. And and look at this book that tells you all about correct. what it should be. And I'm sure there's very well-read people that truly believe that. I don't think they can possibly believe all, every single tenant of a true communist manifesto. Uh, mm-hmm. But if they subscribe to some of those ideas and describe themselves as a communist, I, my initial reaction is to laugh at them, but I, I am more open-minded yeah. than that and I can understand some of whatever. But uh, to truly believe that top to bottom, I, I can't believe anyone well-read and intelligent and would believe 100% of what a communist nation or ideology stands for. Right. Anyways. Yeah, it's just... Back to candy. Yeah, it's just such a prevalent thing. It's funny how it's present, but it's just completely casual. Like, it's casual that you're going to hate a communist, and this communist idea of the communist is evil and and just blanket bad. So it's just Mm -hmm. weird, because it's not 
at all like what it is today. Yeah, yeah. Now you say that with uh, instead of saying communist, you probably say terrorist. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> kind of the same, same blanket. Yeah, and I wonder if fifty years from now we'll be talking, you know, the same thing. You remake this movie with uh, terrorists are stealing, you know, a computer chip that has plans yeah. for a chemical weapon and go away. You know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to advance our candy discussion here, yes. I think what is it? Eventually, she does get the film from uh, from Skip. She clocks him over the head in a fit yes. of rage, but yeah. of course, Skip, I still love you. But boom, yes. Yeah. Uh, but Skip is, uh, if I remember, cleverer than her and pr- expecting to be clocked because he saves one frame of it or something somewhere else. Yeah, I think yeah. the main frame or the last frame or something yeah, like this. The so, money shot, if you will, is yeah, yeah. Candy gets it, and I guess she gets a copy of it, and she's supposed to be in cahoots with the feds now, or the police, I can't remember which, getting them both confused, yeah. or maybe they are the same people, yep. and she's uh, staging a handoff that is supposed to be a sting operation with uh, good old Joey. Joey, yeah. Joey! And, uh, you know, while... While he's coming up to her apartment, she's conveniently taking a bath. I'm not sure why she decided to put herself in that position. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah taking when she's expecting nice him to show up as well, yes. Yeah. The door's open. Come on in. Yeah. Oh, no, it's locked? Yeah. Uh, she makes the handoff, and, of course, Joey's smart enough to understand that there are some frames missing or one frame missing. Yeah. And that's when you have this nice long scene of a, a complete beatdown. Jeez. Just yeah, brutal. it's pretty brutal. Again, we're we're talking about a scene that's uncut. It's very easy to to show violence in a very uh, choppy way with lots of editing. Like every half second, yeah, is a new cut. Makes things look very furious and violent, but you can get away with you know making things look like they're worse than they are. This is a long take. Yeah, he beats up a woman. She's, yeah, she's getting thrown around the room. Furniture's getting thrown about. She's, you know, hitting the edge of stuff, and um, it's a little bit more difficult to pull punches, so to speak, in this type of scene. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a true look at, here's what domestic violence looks like, kids, <laughs> just in case yeah. you're curious. Uh, yeah. It truly is and, surprising. Uh, yeah, and uh, someone gets shot along the way. I think one of the cops comes up and gets shot when he's trying to save her. No, she gets shot as she well, She gets right? shot as well, and the copper, and... Yeah. As you can expect, I mean, I'll give fuller credit. He certainly pushed it as far as possible because he, he offs the copper, but, uh, you know, 89-pound frail uh, candy after he gets smacked around and shot miraculously survives, and I'll give him a pass for that because yeah. he pushed it pretty damn far as is. And last last uh, podcast and the uh, quote-unquote forgotten podcast or the lost podcast yes. that we're hoping to recreate the magic. at some point yes. for White Ribbon, I did tease this, which nobody's going to hear, so I'll restate it now, that I thought that some of Sam Fuller's films were a quote-unquote precursor for some of Martin Scorsese's films. Wow. And this scene in particular, or scenes like this within Sam Fuller films, are the scenes I'm talking about where there's just, just utter brutality that Fuller was able to get away with, especially within the the violent man, the almost animalistic man. You think of Raging Bull, right? I mean, Raging Bull, I think, is very much a Sam Fuller type film done by Martin Scorsese. And you look at uh, the scene that we're talking about now, and you think of, was it Jean Moriarty is her name, or something Moriarty? Mm-hmm. Kathy Moriarty? Yeah. I think it's Kathy. And the way she's getting beat up by 
Robert De Niro. You can almost feel... Yeah. I guess an inspiration. You hate to call a woman getting beat up on film an inspiration, but you can almost see the tie-in no, uh, and from When you mentioned uh, Scorsese that. as well, my initial reaction was, ah, what's Tom talking about? Cape Fear remake, yeah, De Niro again, kind of uh, taking his shirt off and going nuts, beating up, uh, I forget what mm-hmm. lady it was. But yeah, it did definitely, I see where you're going with that. Juliette Lewis, yeah. maybe, or... Rebecca de Mornay. Or maybe after he got out of joint, he beat up a random woman or something. But there was definitely, yeah, I I see what you're going with there. All right. Yeah, I think the idea of man being close to this uncaged animal or pushing the limits and sort of snapping, Nicolas Cage losing his shit. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yes. These these sort of (laughs) Samuel Fuller... um, uh, moments that he brings out in these men, this Richard Whitmark character, or uh, I forget what's the actor's name who played Joey. I'll bring Richard Kiley. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, you can see these these moments of brutality in his films that he's pushing the envelope here. True. Both, I think. Yeah, both dicks and well, even the cop is we he easily talks about. Obviously, he was beating up probably potentially innocent handcuffed people. Um, so even yes. everybody involved pretty much is kind of a dick. Yeah, and they're pushing the limits at this point because they're still under the Hayes system. There's still a lot of uh, things that were not supposed to be shown on films yeah. with respect to violence, drugs, with respect to criminals getting away with uh, certain deeds. I know gangster films, a lot of that. Yeah. Um, they really tightening up the reins on what you can do with these types of movies. And it seems like, uh, to use the term from Manny Farber, the termite already sort of eating away at the the edges of what was being done at film at the time and and finding himself in some new territory as opposed to making some big bombastic film that was uh within the confines of the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And Manny Farber, he was a big proponent of uh Sam Fuller. He was probably his biggest backer. Yeah. Um Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's a big Manny Farber, uh, a critic that comes from the Manny Farber chain, also yeah. sort of backs him up as well on this. And well, I will they talk about his films endearingly. I will grant you that of the movies in the theater the week uh, pick up on South Street, uh, you know, uh, opened up. It probably was the most uh, violent and brutal movie, but right. I probably would like every other movie that was playing at the time more than this one but wow yeah. well and you're you're a guy let's let's put this out there put you're out. a guy who likes his um pulp fiction and i don't mean to pull a tarantino reference here yeah. but actual pulp fiction the noir, uh the gangster movies, films sure, yeah i mean yeah i mean not only noir but you also like the the crime films sure. at the time that even aren't necessarily noirish but still deal with Either gangsters or cops or yeah. hardball detective films. Oh, big time, exactly. And uh, it just didn't work for me. The characters have been too over the top. Um, everyone's too unlikable. Uh, yeah, it just did not work for me. Yeah, but as as I think is plainly evident at this point, if you mm-hmm, listen mm-hmm. this far. But uh, yeah, we're getting into the final stretch here too. So yeah, um, I'm wrapping it up here. He uh, escapes through the elevator shaft. There's this beautiful shot of him sort of stuck in the elevator shaft as he's bringing himself down. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, he shoots another cop on his way out. Um, And then in the final scene, maybe not the final scene, but the confrontational scene at the end, where uh, Widmark uh, finds Joey on the train, 
right? He's, yes. He's, uh, yeah. he, he's, he first sees Candy in the hospital, who's not looking too good, <laughs> all bandaged up. Yeah. Yeah, in a couple different types of casts. And, um, <laughs> yes. I feel sorry for her at that point. Maybe there is a little bit of a love interest there, and decides to uh, go find Joey and uh, get his retribution and get the film back. Yeah. So... They're on the train together, and a uh, throwback to the very initial scene, he pulls up his newspaper, which is his thing, right? Yeah. As Mo describes earlier, you know, how's the guy hold the newspaper? Is it like this? Is it like this? Is it out? Does he pull it up? Does he do this? And she nailed Skip as being the guy who has this method. So he's going through his method. He pulls out his newspaper. Yep. And I have a note on here about... How he when he pulls up his newspaper, it is uncomfortably <laughs> resting on Joey's chin. It's like a dick and, move, like something you do. Like if I put on a funny false nose and a hat yeah. and a fat suit or something, and I saw you on the street, it's like what I would do to you to, to just mess with you. Like, and you'd be wondering yeah. what's this guy doing? Why is this guy so close to me? And putting, I'm putting a paper on your face. I'm just acting like nothing's happening. It's exactly. Hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, it's like something out of an old Tom Green show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, something's yes. about to happen, and he mention he manages to uh, pull his gun off of him at this point, right? Yeah. And his little, little pickpocket move. Um, so Skip disarms, again. yeah, Joey in the process here. Yeah, don't mind me. We're in a subway together. My newspaper is resting on your chin comfortably. <laughs> I'm pulling uh, a six-pound iron out of your your uh, suit yeah. coat here. Don't mind that. So at that point, he knows he's safe to get into a fist fight with him. Uh, they get into a fist fight, and I did want to mention that you know it's a pretty brutal fist fight in the the uh, the subway station downstairs, and I think it ends with somebody getting hit with a subway car. That's someone being Joey. Yeah. But before that happens, one of them is running upstairs. I think it is Joey, and Skip pulls him down. And his face hits about ten <laughs> solid stairs. Boom, 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 yeah. as he's being pulled down. And I can't imagine someone getting up and walking away from that. That's going to slow you down at least to get your bearings. I mean, good <laughs> lord, doink, 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 doink. Uh, it's it's goes on a while. It's a serious number yeah, of stairs. Boom, 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 boom. It, it's comical and painful. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, it, we come to the end of the film where <laughs> yeah. this is kind of comical. Yeah. Uh, Skip and what's her name? Daisy, Candy, Candy, yes. Mandy. <laughs> uh, they're sort of holding, holding their uh, each other's hands with their arm in arm. They're stopping by the detective's office. Oh, that was a great time we just had, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. One of these scenes where we can all smile and look back on it and laugh. The happy wrap up, yeah. And yeah, it's like the happy couple leaving. They came together at the end of the movie, uh-huh. and all I can think about is, I sure as hope that he's moving into her apartment as opposed to her moving into his. Yeah. I mean, the thoughts sort of crossed my mind. I, I know Candy doesn't exactly operate on the level if she's running things for the cops. Uh, not the cops, but the commies. Right? Yeah. If she's running things back and forth as a living. She looks like she's a little bit more well-off than Skip. Yes. And since she's been to his apartment a couple times, gotten punched by him a few times, uh, had a bucket of water thrown on her, yeah. cold water from... Uh, one of the many lovely rivers in New York. Um, you, could say she, you could say she took a bullet from her, for him as well. I mean, and she did get shot because she was trying to help him out. Yeah. I guess it depends on how you and look at it, but that's how I'd look at it. 
Not that not that you ever want to look upon a relationship and and wonder how long it's going to last, <laughs> as opposed to lasting into eternity. Yes. But you really do wonder what the shelf life is on Skip and Candy. Correct, and that's what I wrote down in my notes. Do you really think Candy and Skip live a happy life together? <laughs> the only thing I can think of, and I want the answer to this because I think it'll help strengthen my case if the answer is that Sam Fuller wanted that to be the actual ending. Because if he wanted that to be the actual ending, he's a moron. Now, if he had right. to put that ending in there because they said, all right, you've beaten up this woman, um, you made her a prostitute, uh, you made her try to steal things, you made her attack men, you made her get shot, you have to make her have a happy ending. Either a happy ending or put her out of her misery, yeah. one or the other, right? Um, you've tortured her long enough. If, if Fuller thought that that was the ending to the story that he envisioned, uh, mm. I think that is a damning piece of evidence if that is the case. And is that your scene that you play out where Fuller is a horrible director for making this movie? Is oh, that the scene you were talking about the, at the onset? The one that I really that I that really got me angry and was really bad and it's when uh what Skip he grabs like Skip. a winch or something like that and then he slides uh-huh. over cuz taking the the 2 by 4s to walk into his place is going to be too slow or whatever cuz he's running from somebody. Um, uh-huh. And they move the camera with him to try to add some extra excitement to him swinging over. It's basically like a scene out of a pirate movie. All of a sudden, he's grabbing <laughs> his thing and he's swinging over the river into his abode, his pad, his cabin, his the Unabomber cabin. Right. And the camera movement, because obviously cameras in the 50s are probably 10,000 pounds and they're not meant to be moved... Um, the camera was so shoddy, it's like shaking up and down because it's probably on boards or whatever. It is so horrible that he tries to introduce action, but he ends up taking away from the movie in the process. So it would just be more exciting to watch him swing over there than to have the camera try to follow him over this unsteady pace. And it's not mm-hmm. like unsteady like it's a shaky cam or somebody's you know, like putting a camera at their hips and running with somebody. It's shaky because it's 10,000 pounds. It's the size of a Volkswagen, and it's running on cobblestone. That's how shaky it is. It's not cool shaky. It's bad shaky. Mm-hmm. Do you even remember that scene? It was kind of a, just a I, trivial second, but... Yeah, no, I don't even remember that at all. It, oh. it wasn't noteworthy for me. It didn't really, yeah, have a lasting effect on me one way or the other. And he probably had one take, like you mentioned, they're on a budget, you know, you get, <laughs> we're going to give yeah. you 90 minutes worth of film to shoot an 82-minute movie, so don't make many mistakes, dude. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But that said, that he chose to actually leave that shot in there. Sam Fuller, shame on you. It, even though you died 15 years ago, but shame on you from afar. Shame on you. Sir, yes. Sir. All right. Yeah. So that brings us to the end here. Uh, Sam Fuller, the quote-unquote masculine film director, right? Yeah. Uh, Bringing us pickup on South Street. Matt, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. This is our our award-winning section where we ask questions about the film. Yes. Who would I party with? Well, you know, we talked... This is the the one question we carry over from film to film. Absolutely. And I'm probably going to steal your thunder here. Um, Yeah, you are. Yeah, we both uh, love this guy named Lightning Louie. Absolutely. So he's another member of the underworld that Candy goes to to try to extract some information about where Skip is or something like that, I think. Maybe that's before she bumps into Moe. Or, no, she's looking to find Moe... Yes. Mm, yeah, she's following some breadcrumb, you know, to find somebody. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And he, he's a, kind of a bigger dude. He reminded me of uh, Hurley from Lost. Kind of fatter, a little unshaven, a little unkempt. Definitely mm-hmm. has the look and feel. But he's just one cool cucumber, and he's eating uh, Chinese food with chopsticks. Yes. Um, yeah. And he's just selling the hell out of it, man. I love that guy. He should be yeah, in every he, movie. He's, he's leaned forward. He's looking away from the person who's talking to him. <laughs> He's got this little bowl with these chopsticks that he's got like about an inch away from his face that he's just like working into his face, right? <laughs> yes. And he's just working these chopsticks over. He's talking to poor Candy, who, uh, again, at this point, I mentioned Candy looks really dumb throughout the whole movie. Yeah. She constantly does these things where she makes mistakes, right? Yes. It, she she plays into the hand of other people, and with Lightning Louie, she makes another mistake because... She asks him where he, she can find Lightning Louie, and he says something like, give me a 20 and I'll tell you. Yeah. And she drops a 20, and, you know, he moves his chopsticks, you know, from the bowl to his mouth, to the 20, brings it closer to him, chopsticks <laughs> back in the bowl, says, I'm Lightning Louie, and proceeds to eat. Like, <laughs> you know, like he's done this a thousand times before, yep. but bringing the chopsticks to grab the money without flinching and then saying, hey, you idiot, you just gave me 20 bucks. I'm the guy you're looking for. Yeah, thanks for nothing, sucker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she did stuff like that throughout the whole movie. She was constantly telling people, no, I didn't level with the cops yeah. and looking like she's lying doing it. Like, she's, yeah. Yeah, I would... With, with every character in the movie. So, yeah, Lightning Louie is also the guy that I'd like to uh, yeah. party with. I mean, you would, you'd want to lock up the fine china when he comes over, because that dude's got fingers that'll, that can move quick. But uh, definitely yeah. a fun guy and an interesting character out of the whole the whole uh, cornucopia mess that is the rest of the movie. But Bring another order of Chow Fun, Chasho Bao. <laughs> dude's got some lines, man. Yeah, yes. yeah. Lightning Louie had a small role in the film. You could put Lightning Louie in probably about ten other films, and I would enjoy them. Yeah, perfect character for the <laughs> CD underworld. Yeah, exactly. And I as well would party with Lightning Louie. Yeah. Uh, if you need a different answer from me, I would uh, party with Mo Williams. Stop it! You're just saying that to. Upset I don't know if you. Me. What? I don't even remember that character from this movie. She was played by Thelma Ritter. Yeah. Did we discuss her yet? You would not party with that old bitty. <laughs> She talks in riddles, trying to be witty and crap. That no one, no one talks that way, with that accent. Yeah, but what if I need a tie, Matt? That's my next question. If you need a tie, which character would you ask in the movie? Jesus, anybody but Mo Williams, <laughs> the copper, the brutal the copper. Cops. Yeah, I'd take whatever tie he was wearing. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I did have a question on here. Yeah, this is going to be a tough one to answer. What was the worst line in the movie? Because there were a lot of lines, like you said, there. They're trying to be clever. They're trying to be underworld and, yeah. you know, sort of pull a fast one on you. They're trying to use street smarts. They in this are movie. trying to use street smarts. And, yeah, I read some that uh, Fuller talked with some former or current New York police department detectives trying to get uh, perspective on, you know, how their life is working with the CD underbelly. And I could see him doing the same thing, you know, trying to hang out with some criminals to figure out how they talk. And he's no he's no mammoth, I'll say that much, because he, he did not <laughs> distill the true essence of criminals, or what I expect a criminal to be. Uh, the worst line for the movie for me um, is the, and I'm going to cheat a little bit, but it's the death scene for Mo, where she goes on and on reminiscing about, you know, her life and why this is her time now, and oh my god, mm-hmm. how can, I don't understand why we've established Joey is a jerk and an evil person. He, obviously, Mo isn't coughing up the answer you're looking for, 
And obviously you've decided to cap her. Shoot her. Shoot her. God. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, my my least favorite line, it, just a small line, yeah. was the one where Candy's trying to sell that she uh, she loves him or really likes. Uh, <laughs> I really not like Joey, you. but yeah. Skip. Uh, Skip, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way you touch me when it's not coming at me <laughs> full speed in the form of a fist. You know? Yeah, everything but, but the punches. The other times you touched me are pretty nice. I really like you. God. Just Candy in general, she was the one that bothered me. She's probably yeah. my mo uh, really? in this movie. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, but she didn't bother me nearly as much as Mo bothered you. But yeah. you know, I'm just watching her throughout the movie, thinking, "No, you're so stupid, don't do that." But at the same time, I understand that's the character. Yeah. And I thought that if she's supposed to be playing this very naive, misstepping uh, woman, then she's doing a wonderful job at that. At least. Yeah, I thought Jean uh, Peters, the candy character. Uh, yeah. Uh, she did. I thought she was the best in the whole movie uh, in terms of acting, uh, chops, and everything. I agree yeah. that she did some things that were just absolutely infuriating with the stupidity. But um, I thought she really did well, you know, playing the victim, uh, trying t- to be innocent, even though she's got this underbelly or seedy underbelly going on. Um, and I really expected to want, like Richard Widmark, since I found him so compelling in Kiss of Death, you know, mm-hmm. I was uh, favoring him from the get go. But um, there wasn't a, a whole lot in that Skip character to really chew into. Uh, I thought Jean Peters did a really good job, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but her character is annoying as can, all can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what is the relationship between a pickpocket and a snitch to you, Matt? Hey, snitches get stitches, buddy. That's what I hear. You know, if you listen <laughs> to rap. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Again, that's just another thing that is just so ridiculous. And so we've got the idea here is that Mo is kind of hanging out with the true criminals, and everyone seems to know Mo is a snitch. But you know, she's a lovable character, or she only snitches on bad criminals. Is that why they let her hang out? Is that is that the pitch? I gotta sneeze. No, because I mean, awesome. Richard Whitmer, uh, Skip. Yeah was talking to her at one point, and he was sympathetic for her, and even when she died, he went to get her corpse so it wasn't buried at sea or whatever they're going to do with it. Yes. And <laughs> the whole time, he, he's essentially sort of endeared to Mo. Yes. Why is he's, that? He doesn't blame her for snitching on him because he realizes everyone has to make a buck somehow, and that's just how she does it. I mean, they've got this sort of brotherhood, even though they're endangering each other. It was very confusing to me. It was interesting, I thought. At the same time, very confusing. Why would why would he say this and yes, do this? It's and... not believable, and we're not even. They're not even attempting to give us a reason why we should believe that this is the case. That yeah. Uh, I mean, if they're not that I want to do this. If there's some reveal that Mo was his mother, some crap. Then all right, well, there's well, a reason. Thank God why they didn't go that yes, way. Yes, but yeah. th- thankfully they didn't do that. But. Um, I mean, just to accept this wholesale, she's like a, a mascot, the lovable mascot of the criminals is Mo, and you know nobody likes a mascot. I, everyone hates mascots. You know, you want to punch the Philly fanatic as much as I do, even if you're from Philly. But it's your mascot, so therefore you like it. And Mo is their mascot. And I, I didn't see mascot. I thought she was more like the towel boy. Like she, she's not high up on the ladder. She's at the <laughs> lowest rung of the ladder, yeah. and she's mopping up the sweat 
of the criminal society and, and getting whatever scraps she can that fall off the plate of the rich within the criminal society. Yeah. And by that, she's just, you know, selling out whoever she can for a buck. Uh, it took me this long, but I, I really like that mascot idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run with that. I wish I had started yeah. out with that idea, but it took us talking about this crappy movie for an hour for me to come to that conclusion. Oh, crappy movie. Oh, you oh, suck, man. I know. But... Just be thankful she got some lead in the head at the very end she of the did. movie, She did. She did. I liked it. The lead haircut, yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, let's see what else did I have here. Oh, yes. And the final quote of the mo- uh, the final quote I have yeah. is, uh, how many times have you been caught with your hand where it doesn't belong, Matt? Yeah. Well, I did my... Uh, Quick line from the movie, and it's a question to you. I did my two-finger joke at the beginning, <laughs> so I won't use that one again. Uh, okay. You know, luckily my criminal record's pretty clean. Uh, I haven't done a lot of things that uh, I'm pretty embarrassed about. So, so far, there you, you know, go. I think I'm in pretty good shape. How about yourself? Any notable can-in-the-cookie-jar moments in uh, the Jackass Tom history you want to share with uh, our massive audience? No, none at all. Uh, that'll wrap up the Jackass Critics podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, but Matt, uh, do you want to give the movie a score and a, a, a 1 to 10 score? I. Oh. I don't think that this is a great movie yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. If you want to talk about uh, crime movies and film noir, it doesn't fall into the film noir category for me, although Agreed. some will put it there. We've had our discussions on film noir, and I think both of us are in alignment with, uh, was it the Peter Schaefer, Paul Schaefer? Yeah. No, he's definition. a CBS Orchestra guy, right? Uh yeah, what Paul is, Schrader? Schrader, yeah, the writer for Taxi Driver and uh, lots of yeah, yeah, yeah. movies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In the agreement that Film noir should not only be thematically dark, but it also needs to be aesthetically dark in order to qualify. And I don't think that this film really qualifies because most of it takes place in the daytime anyway. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's not going to fall into that category for me, but uh, in general I give it maybe like about a, a six. Really? That's probably about as high as I'll go on it. I don't think I would find myself... If it's on Turner Classic Movies and there's other things on, would I go back to it? I did watch it a couple times in preparation for this podcast, and I enjoyed it well enough, but I I wouldn't put it on uh, the same level as a number of other movies. It's not out of the past. It's not one of those great films. I mean, by giving Um, it a six, you're telling me that it's above average, and I can't think it's above average in any possible way. I mean, I... I do think it's above average. Really? I think it's it's better than... It's better than an average other... crime movie or a caper movie? Yes. Wow. I've seen worse. Well, we... I have seen worse. Seen and again, worse, I, I didn't... Above I didn't average? Seethe, I didn't seethe with hatred for Mo Williams like you did. Yeah. I would say above average, yeah. Huh. Just slightly above average. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, I just can't think of anything it does above average that I like. The characterizations mm-hmm. I thought were all pretty bad. Um, yeah, the the best part is the the initial scene is is well done, but yeah. uh, as far as crime movies go, I think it's well below average. Yeah, fifties black and white movies, it's well below average. Um, I can't. Wow. I would say it's a two at most. I can't really think of Whoa. a positive thing really that I like about it all that much. I thought uh, Jean <laughs> was pretty good at the role, but her role was horrible. So I mean, she was good at something bad. I mean. Uh, yeah, not really my cup of tea. Okay. Yeah. There you have it. And I can't wait. Thank you for that. I, and just to make it plainly clear, I think Sam Fuller's a bad director and made bad movies, and I can't wait for everyone to out to come out and tell me I'm wrong. Bam. Okay. I I will send you some literature. Yes. Uh, of people defending Sam Fuller, and you can decide for yourself whether you agree with it. I've read through a few things from 
say Rosenbaum to to uh, Manny Farber and a couple other um, critics as well, because I was very interested to see why so many people do put him on a pedestal. Yes, and uh, for the most part, it, it was um, you know the brutality for the time. It was the way he was a little bit unconventional in those matters and the way he was trying to uh, maybe come at you with like a big bang with some of these extremely violent scenes. Yeah. I mean, would you say, speaking of Eli Roth, would you think Eli Roth doing Hostel? I mean, I think if 30, 40 years from now, if somebody is going to be doing an Eli Roth podcast and trying to say, well, in making Hostel, he was just pushing the bounds of, you know, what was decent and acceptable at the time. I mean, that's yeah, crap. Totally that doesn't agree. take any talent. You can make human centipede where people are pooping each other's mouths. It doesn't mean there's any talent involved there. I totally agree with you on both those All accounts right, as enough. well. Rock yeah, I, I think there, there's a limit to it. And it, maybe at the time, because of the Hayes Code, yeah. it meant more to see someone like Fuller who was trying to push the bounds of criminal realism as opposed to glossing things up and and playing within the PG, yeah, what was uh, so to speak, yeah. rules. That were applied at the time. Yeah, which were even worse than PG. I mean, you could tell a PG movie where a bad guy wins, but I mean, they were even more restrictive than that at the time, which is just crazy. Right, the bad yeah. guys couldn't win. Period. Back in those days. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that a lot of the the press behind Fuller, from what I've seen, while I don't agree with you that he's a bad director, I think he's a good director. I just don't elevate him to the level of some of the great directors of that era. I yeah. think they're. He's many rungs below yeah. some of those greats, right? I hear Consider you. Hitchcock, oh, Wells, yeah. um, John Ford, right? And he's nowhere near that category. Well, okay. I'm and with good reason. Okay, very good. To <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Matt, you want to talk about our next film? Should we yeah. uh, bring yeah, that up? Yeah, this is going to be an interesting Podcast one. Um, it's one we've both seen before, which is kind of unusual. I don't know if we've ever done that yet, but um, it's one that we both have had strong feelings for at the time, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Mr. Guy Ritchie's first movie, or first mainstream movie, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what he did before that, maybe music videos or something. Right. And you really liked it uh, on at, at theatrically, and I was not a huge fan of it theatrically, uh, to the point that I was threatening to end our friendship, retroactively. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, to extend upon that teaser, and I, I, I think it's fun to talk about it here, uh, when I was a student, I saw a early screening of this film before, maybe like a month before it was released, when they do that at colleges still these days, Yeah. Uh, back in 1997 or 98, yeah. and I completely loved it. This was at a time, as we were talking about on part one of the podcast, where both Matt and I were fans of Tarantino, sure. eagerly waiting to see the next things he would do at the time. Uh, Jackie Brown was, I think, also coming out, or had recently come yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, same era, yeah. Uh, so I was very excited to see this, and I sent a message to Matt saying immediately, as soon as this movie comes out, go see it, because if you like Tarantino, you'll love this movie. Yeah. This is going to be a completely enjoyable movie for you, and I know you are uh, a man of the crime and violent films. Right. And so what happened then, a uh, group of friends went out to the <laughs> film with Matt yeah. and universally trashed the movie. Uh, and Jack S. Didn't by default. Did, yeah. Yes. Trashing Jackass Tom for actually bringing this film up uh, is even something to possibly watch, let alone pushing it on everyone, telling them they would love it severely. So, um, yeah, I I took a lot of flack back in the day for that. And I'd like to see if 15 years later, 
if there's any changes in opinions, uh, even what the film was about, because I don't think I've seen it since I first saw it in the theater, and maybe it has changed since then. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, Snatch built a lot of goodwill for Guy Ritchie in my mind, such that I was willing to forgive him for the Madonna years and for Revolver. Um, so I'm very curious if that goodwill is going to extend into me liking Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels more or, or not. Um, I'm very curious to see because yeah. I expect uh, to to like it, actually, even though I w- realize I didn't like it last time. But it's from Guy Ritchie, and typically yeah. you know your, your rookie movie, if you will, has got all that creative juices you've been storing up your whole life. Um, I suspect that I'm going to like it, but we'll see. Yeah, I suspect you will too. I think that the reason you didn't like it before is because I told you you would like it, and therefore, well, that's why I created a. <laughs> that's why they call me Jackass Matt. Yep. Uh, that's exactly why. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to the next podcast. Yes. Uh, hopefully, we do it soon. All right. And we are also planning to recreate some sort of uh, podcast review, probably not the full hour plus that we're normally used to yep. recording, yeah. but uh, something for the lost footage of. Uh, White Ribbon. I I should probably speak to that right now, uh, not to drag this one out any longer, but we recorded White Ribbon. Uh, There were some computer malfunctions after the recording. Uh, I think a file got copied over, and we lost it for the ages. Yeah, It was a beautiful, enlightening discussion on White Ribbon that no one has ever heard, nor shall ever hear again. No one shall ever hear, yeah. It's going to be just the the Paul is dead or the lost tapes that they're going to be talking about hundreds of years from now, you know. They're going to try to recreate it and everything. It's going to be going to be like, grand. Like the original version of of Greed or Metropolis. Yes. Uh, yeah. People will still be looking into computer files to recreate Podcast Eight Part B uh, discussion about exactly. the White Ribbon. You know, and you read about these movies that are lost or whatever, and you think, how the heck do you lose a movie? What What do you mean it's a lost movie? But we created our own little lost piece of history, and uh, we'll try to recreate yeah. it. We'll do what we can to uh, reignite that discussion, at least uh, maybe do a half hour or so of it. The funny part uh, we is will see. we still have my half of the conversation, and I can super faintly hear you know, your uh, points of view in the, my recording, as a matter of fact. So uh, <laughs> some historian somewhere down the line is going to do like some Zapruder film, John F. Kennedy stuff on it, and yeah. we'll be able to, to compare you know, what we recreate to the original. Yeah, they they may even take celebrities and uh, put them on the other end of this. Maybe that's the new podcast form oh, where somebody's idea. actually... Yeah. There you go. All right. Uh, what if Jackass Matt were talking to Alec Baldwin? <laughs> Stay away from I the green sushi, Tom. That's what my recommendation to you, sir. I'll do what I can. All right. And don't don't eat that killer blowfish either. I, I mean, I don't want to read a story about a guy from the Midwest dying in Japan from trying the killer blowfish that kills one in every 200 people. <laughs> I'll try to stay safe while I'm out. All right. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Yes. Good evening, good night, good morning, wherever you are. (laughs) Bye-bye.
Jackass!